CQ, CQ, this is W9GFO. Is anybody out there? I'm not getting anything. Small moves, Ellie. Small moves. If there wasn't, it'd be an awful waste of space. Are we recording? Never stopped. Well, hello there, and welcome back to Take Me to Your Reader, discussing adapted science fiction at its best and worst. I'm Seth. I'm James. And I'm Colin. And we're back, and this time we are following up for our February episode with a request that we got from Rem from the Sci-Fi Movie Podcast. More about them in a minute. But what we'll be covering this time is the Carl Sagan book Contact from 1985, and we'll also be talking about the 1997 Robert Zemeckis-directed Jodie Foster-starring film of the same name. And Matthew McConaughey, geez. Yeah, I guess he was in there, too. And the Iron Eagle guy. And Matthew McConaughey's hair was also in there. Sometimes. <laughs> Other for, times For not better so much. or for worse, depending on the scene. <laughs> totally true. Yeah. <laughs> so I did want to say a big thank you to Rem and the guys at the Sci-Fi Movie Podcast who were kind enough to let me come on the show. And I will put a link in the show notes to the episode that I was on about Rise of the Planet of the Apes. And in addition, I will put a link to the Sci-Fi Movie Podcast episode discussing Contact. And I just want Yay. to say, yeah, I just want to say if there are any of our listeners out there who didn't already come to us from the Sci-Fi Movie Podcast, which seems <laughs> unlikely, um, but the Drake Equation says there must be somebody out there, I guess. Um, if you listen to us and you like science fiction and you like podcasts, I highly recommend the Sci-Fi Movie Podcast, and you can find them at sci-fi-moviepodcast.com. With that, I think I will turn it over to one of the other guys to start talking about the book. Start talking about the book. Start talking about the book. I'm going to talk about the story. Excellent. All right. <laughs> it's not always possible to talk about the story, right? True. Sometimes the Sometimes adaptations. You, they're so vastly different. Yeah. You can't really pull it off. But this time, I think I can. Oh, I'm going to give it a shot anyway. Go for it. All right. So, Contact is a story about Ellie Arroway and her contact with an extraterrestrial alien civilization. Uh, we start off, we know that Ellie is a brilliant radio astronomer and physicist who has dedicated her life to SETI, the search for extraterrestrial intelligence. I hope I got that right. Yep. Okay. <laughs> uh, so during her time at the as a project lead at the VLA, Very Large Array, in New Mexico, an alien civilization establishes contact with Earth via a message uh, initially consisting of prime numbers. Or at least that's what they detect at first. Uh, after further research, there are several layers to this message discovered which communicate machine designs, which will presumably allow further contact with the alien civilization. Um, the governments of Earth decide to collaborate to build this machine and use it to quote-unquote travel through the galaxy, I guess. They're, they're presuming it's for, yeah, supposedly for travel or some form of contact with them. So right. they're like, okay, let's build it and see what happens. And see what happens. Right. Yeah. And... From, from that point on, the uh, movie and book tend to diverge, so I left it at that. Okay. <laughs> yeah, I'm not sure they totally diverge, but there's... A little there's... bit, right? Because in the movie you have Ellie going, and in the book you right. have Ellie and others mm -hmm. going. Which I think is a nice nice discussion about the difference between the book and the movie. Yes. There's a whole lot more right. in the book than there is in the movie. Because right. the book was 425 pages? Yeah, something like that. So this is one of those situations where... You know, there's a lot more story content right. in the book than there ever could be in the movie. Yeah. Yeah. And so, Colin, you were going to talk a little bit about the kind of the background of the book, the history of it. Yeah. Uh, it started off as a screenplay uh, written by Carl Sagan and Andrewian, Druyan, mm -hmm. uh, and uh, nothing was going on with it. And so they adapted it into a novel. Uh, it was not a really bad novel. Uh, it won the Locus Award for Best New Sci-Fi Novel in 1986, the year after it was published. Nice. Really? Yep. Wow. Huh. Yeah. Right. And then, uh, you know, 11 years after it won the award, out pops this movie. And uh, if you read enough Wikipedia articles and other things that Wikipedia was based off of, they say that, uh, that technically that the movie was not adapted from the novel. They went back to the original source material and worked from there. Oh, interesting. Oh, so, the original screenplay. Yeah. So we might not even be considering <laughs> it as an adaptation of the book. Right. No, we could be doing a the book is the adaptation of, of the, the screenplay. Of the screenplay. Yes. <laughs> yes. 
I was kind that. of I was curious about what the content of the screenplay was and yeah. how it differed from the story. Well, so in in my kind the, the of, novel, I mean, yeah. in my looking for for background stuff, I found on IO9 there was a copy of a letter that Sagan sent in 1995 oh, right. complaining about the adaptation. And so I don't know if they fixed some of the issues hmm. with the script, but he was clearly not pleased about the direction they were going at some point. Well, given that we've read the book mm-hmm. and seen the movie, would you say that his complaints had been fixed or not? I don't know what I mean. I'd have to, I'd have to look back specifically at what his complaints were. I think most of them were about the character of Ellie, because right. of course, almost all of the other ancillary characters in the book are either consolidated or eliminated completely. And the, right. you you have Ellie. If you don't get her right, then it wouldn't. From work. from what I yeah. remember from the reading the article that you mentioned, um, yes and no. <laughs> I guess since, since not completely, no. Okay. Uh, I, I I don't know if we want to start this now, but yeah, bring it up. I didn't I didn't get Ellie's obsession with her search for extraterrestrial intelligence in the movie, like why she was so obsessed with it. Um and and also we I mean, there is there there is that bit with Hayden or Haddon Haddon yeah Haddon going through and be like oh I've done my research on you you did this 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 this. It was very kind of swept under the rug, though, right? And, yeah, her, and the, her brilliance and the fact yeah. that she's not just a good radio researcher, but she's a good physicist. Exactly. You you don't get that she is like an epitome in her field, even though she's female. And that was a huge theme in the book. Yeah. Not so much taken care of in the movie. The, the feminism side of it. Yeah. yeah. How she, she was ostracized right. for being smart, and her dad was always trying to talk her down for being stepdad. Mm-hmm. Was talking her down for being smart, right. and she was, you know, ignored by colleagues and supervisors and right. everyone else. Yeah, and so it almost seems to make sense that she would get shunted into mm-hmm. the side field of SETI, which is really almost, where she yeah. wanted to be in right. the first place. True, but, yeah. but you don't get that in the movie. In the movie, I didn't, I didn't get the feminist science no. part of it. It was there, um, not not really the feminist science part, but like the the idea that a guy is going to step right. in and, and grab glory. Yeah, and, I, and push a lady I, aside. It, my first, I remember, what I've noticed, my first notice of that was when uh, Drumlin, Drumlin yeah. took the camera instead of Ellie going up and introducing right. uh, her VLA and what they found in New Mexico. And mm-hmm. Drumlin went up and did that instead. Yeah, and, and so I, I kind of, I at first I was okay, maybe this is the example of that. But then further down the movie, you 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 run into all kinds of instances of him hogging the camera basically. Yeah, yeah. and I realized it's not really him. It didn't to me. It didn't seem like it was really him getting down on her because she's a girl. I right. think it was just because he's a he's a glory hog. He's a glory hog. He was and a he was just a jerk. Yeah, yeah. Um, definitely, that was one of the things I I wrote down to talk about is the kind of the feminist aspect of it and the women in science and what a struggle it can be, which mm-hmm. is definitely true and still is in many ways. Yeah. And so I I really liked that part of it. I, I thought you know this this is written in the eighties. And it's still an issue today, which is kind of depressing. Yeah. Right. The, the one place I thought where her, where her strong female character came out was uh, she ends up sleeping with uh, Palmer Joss. Right. And she's the one that takes off the next day. Oh, yeah, yeah right. just leave your note on the table. Leave your number on the table. I'll call you. Right. Yeah. So like like Colin was saying, the, the book is much, much more detailed. And there are some faults in the book for that. And, and we've kind of discussed some of the detail that certainly I felt was not necessary. And there were a couple things I thought I, I wrote down early on the, that the book really kind of showed evidence of having been adapted from a screenplay. Cause there's certain things that you would expect that would work visually, but it doesn't really work in a book. And a couple examples I had were like a one-sided phone conversation. You see it occasionally in fiction, but I don't think it's usually very effective and right. it usually would work in a film because you could have body language and that kind of stuff in there to, add some color to the scene. Yeah. And one of the other ones was when somebody was narrating uh, a computer screen. And I thought, <laughs> I thought in a screenplay, it makes perfect sense that, you know, you're going to have a visual aid there. You're going to have a computer screen. The viewer is going to see it. And then the narration will just kind of explain what's going on. Whereas in the book, you're trying to do all of that with words. And I didn't find it very effective. I think it worked in the end, but I think that might have been the only example where yeah. it did work. So to me, like the the main part that I where I think the book worked better than the movie was was at the end. Mm-hmm. So let's talk about a couple of the differences, though. Um, kind of 
Ellie's childhood. Oh, I thought we were still going on details that they got wrong. Okay. (laughs) Well, I just remember because you listed prime numbers. Right. Right. Yeah. Yeah. They start with one, two, three, and then somewhere else it's three, five, and then other ones it's two and three, and they leave one, but then they put it back in, and it was was all kinds of confusing. Yeah. So the book and the movie try to do a good job of getting the science right, Right. and I'm really surprised that the book got that particular thing wrong. Right. Because there's two lists of the primes. Well, not not two lists of the primes, but on the same page, there's somebody saying there's no even primes, and then right. showing two <laughs> in the primes, but showing one as well. Yes. Yeah. And yeah, <laughs> right. it was just kind of funny. It's the, it's the kind of thing you wouldn't think would slip by people like Kip Thorne. Um, True. I don't know. If, did you read the acknowledgments? Like the people who read the drafts? I don't remember. Yeah. There was a I must have skimmed it. I don't remember. I don't remember who the list was, but I remember you saying Kip Thorne. Yeah. I remember saying that. Yeah, which he also consulted on Interstellar, which then, I didn't like and you guys did. Oh, Interstellar. There was, was cool. another detail you mentioned. Um, oh, Was Vega. it the prose, like how it was written, um, you weren't a big fan of? No, I, I think it was the part about introducing characters. They were talking about the oh, International right. Committee, yeah. and yes. all the people are, are named and described, right. and it's the only time you ever come across you them. See them. So there's this, you know, there's a couple pages of information mm-hmm. that really don't bring anything in to drive the story forward at that point. Yeah, and that yeah, that was a problem that I had. Was it introduced dozens? It seemed like, and it's probably not dozens. It's probably like twelve people, yeah. but then only five of them were really important, and we already knew like three. We of already five. knew the important people. Yeah, yeah. The only one I think in that I remember that part in the book. The only name from that list that ended up continuing on was the Indian lady. That oh, went, I thought, that I thought it was maybe the, the Chinese guy who ended up in the five and, oh, in the, and the guy from Nigeria. No, the Chinese guy was introduced earlier than that. Oh, was he? Okay. Yeah, okay. Oh, that's when right. When they were talking about the Chinese delegation. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's a big cast in the book. People kind of pop right. in and then pop out. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's one thing I liked about the movie. The movie is, is condensed and it's an intensified version of the core story. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, Something's got lost in that process, I think. We can talk about that later. Mm-hmm. But overall, uh, you know, as far as like keeping track of, of who is who and what they're doing, it's a lot simpler. Right. Yeah. And the, some of that is character con- consolidation, right? Because you have like Palmer Joss in the movie is Palmer Joss and Dare or whatever his name was. Yeah. Kind of, yeah. Um, and actually, I was listening to the commentary, the Robert Zemeckis commentary on the DVD, and he, he said that. He essentially is a consolidation of like three characters in the, oh, okay. in the book. Yeah, cool. That makes so, sense. Yeah, it's like, it's like they took the emotional side of Deher and threw him into Matthew McConaughey, and then took the scientific president advisor half of him and threw it into drama. Yeah. Well, there really isn't kind of an overarching love story in the book. There's kind of some episodic things because she has that right relationship with Deher, but yeah, and that goes for over half the book, which is Rocky. Her and her yeah. entire situation in, in that regard is Rocky. Mm-hmm. Which it it kind of drives home the well, you know, the kind of choice that females have in the career, right? Right. In the, Do you in have the professional to world, between career, career and versus family. marriage and family or something? Yeah, and a couple times in the book, there's the regret that she never had children, which right. was it, it was a little discordant to me. Not that I think that's unrealistic, but I wouldn't call that feministic. <laughs> right. Feministic is feministic or feministic? Not sure. Feministic, yeah. well, no, I'm going to cut that. Feministic out was more like you know they should be able to have children and their job and all this, and that they felt like they had to choose between those things mm-hmm. because of it was a male dominated world. Yeah. There was also an instance where he referred to the Little Dipper as a constellation, which is totally wrong. The Little Dipper isn't a constellation. No, it's an asterism. It's a what? Uh, an asterism. Continue. Okay. So, and so an asterism is a group of stars representing a shape. A constellation is a group of other stars and asterisms together in one thing. So, in, in basic terms. So, the Little Dipper is an asterism in the larger constellation of Ursa Minor. Okay. Yes. I, I think I was aware of that. Yeah. It doesn't include all the stars, right? Correct. It's like the Summer Triangle or the Winter Square or Orion's Belt. Those are all asterisms. Okay. Whereas Orion would be the Whereas constellation. Whereas Orion's the constellation. Interesting. You see, you learn something new every day. Yeah. Nice one, Jimmy. <laughs> I had to throw it out there because it annoyed me. It was bugging me. I'm like, ah, no, that's wrong. So one of the key plot points in both the book and the movie, not as much in the movie, is that um, we have to get an international coalition going here because when Vega sets, we need somebody else to be recording right. the message, right? right? Now, 
you looked it up from New Mexico. Absolutely, mm-hmm. Vega sets and and actually goes over the horizon, and so you, right. you're not going to be receiving from that. I also checked it for Sweden. Just you did, to, yeah. Just okay. to fact check your article. Yeah. <laughs> so did it check out? Yes. Okay. I put it in the. I so I have a I have a link to. Well, I put a link for you to put in the show notes. Sweet. To the U.S. Naval Observatory website, where you can calculate. Um, Rise, set, and transit times of galactic bodies. Nice. So, yeah, it turns out that it's, I think it was anything above the 51st parallel, or 50, 51 degrees north. That would make sense, because Sweden's pretty high up there, right? <laughs> yeah. Vega used to be the North Star. Right. 12,000 years and, ago. And, you know, the thing we know well, about... 14,000 years ago. Right. In 12,000-something BC. The current North Star doesn't set when you're in the northern latitudes. It just... Right. It just stays at the top and we spin around it, right. essentially. And so you wouldn't need to have observatories in Australia or Russia right. in order in order to get it. It's an expedient I, I'm, I'm willing to forgive. And, and the fact is that New Mexico, from New Mexico, it did set. But mm-hmm. they didn't necessarily need this huge international coalition. They just needed to go to Sweden. Right. Assuming, of course, Sweden had... Because Sweden had the... Had the- Capability but then, which one they the, do because I looked at, I looked up I looked that up as well. Oh, sweet! So I looked I looked up the observat- European observatories started there, mm-hmm. and then I found a European observa- uh, radio observatory in Sweden, found its coordinates and its altitude, plugged those into the calculator <laughs> to make sure that it indeed did not set in Sweden. And it, <laughs> this observatory existed in the mid eighties. That's the I, I don't know the the calculator only goes back to I think twenty twelve. So. Okay. It's possible that it wasn't there. It's possible that it wasn't there in the mid eighties. That is true. One of the other things in the book is that it takes place over a a, quite a large period of time. We don't really know when the book started, like what what the date was at the beginning. Um, I'm talking about the beginning of the main story, not the not Ellie's past. Right. Right. I think though, there's some there there are a couple dates in there, and it sounds like she was born in the sixties, maybe. Um, No. No, I'd say she's born in the seventies. No. Yeah, late sixties sounds right. There was well, I think, because the book takes place starts taking place anyway in the late eighties. It had to based on the transit time of light from here to Vega, and transmitting the right um, Hitler message. Yeah, but there's also the whatever computation and rebroadcast time. Right, that, exactly. that allows the fudge factor for for a 1997 movie. Correct. Well, it took him a few years to <laughs> right to crunch the data. It took him a few on years it. to turn it around on us. Yeah. Right. What's next? More book stuff. Sure. Well, it, I don't know. I think I can only talk about the book stuff in regard to the movie, so maybe maybe not. Well, if you want to go back to other stuff that they left out of the movie. Well, yeah, Ellie's childhood. Right. You know, and the fact that she lost her dad at an early age and that... Yeah, they had that part all backwards, right? It was yeah. uh, Ellie's, Ellie's mom that died early on and... Well, yeah, not early, really, I early suppose, in, huh? Oh, you're talking about in the movie. Yeah, the movie. Because the movie, she dies at childbirth and then he dies... A, he seems to die in the movie about the same age that he dies in the book for her. Yeah. Right. Uh, her mom is just not around in the movie as opposed to the book. Right. You don't have the stepdad arc. You don't really right. have any other information about her childhood. Right. You just have enough to establish that she loved her dad and her dad was who got her interested in astronomy. Mm-hmm. And radio, you, have that, radio you have that moment where she's, she's trying to find him. Yeah. After the funeral, she, you know, she runs back upstairs to the shortwave and is you know, going, CQ, CQ, Come dad, back. dad, can you hear me? Right. I, I thought it was interesting that just the language of of that shortwave and where, where she said "come back," meaning broadcast, but it had an interesting resonance. The, kind of the second time I I watched it, come back, telling her dad to come back. Yeah. And and to me that kind of gave the movie a little bit of credibility for talking about her motivation for going into radio astronomy. Mm-hmm. You know, you start off as a young child looking for your dad. You know, sure. to talk to yeah. you over the airwaves, and mm-hmm. then you know that that grows from a certain point, right? You right. go from an interest to a cur- to a point of study to a career to, to an obsession. Yeah. yeah, and they had established that earlier in the film as well when she's asking her dad, "Can we find mom out there?" Yeah, yeah. So the, you know, there's a plot line in the book which there's this tension between her and her mom because her stepdad did not believe she should be a scientist, right? Yeah, mm-hmm. and didn't approve what she was doing. It wasn't, it wasn't proper for a lady. And then uh, as they begin to get the message, her mom becomes very, very ill. And now there's an additional stressor where she feels like she's abandoning her mom Mm -hmm. and her stepdad is continually coming down on her. And yet she doesn't have time to go to visit her as often as she wants or Mm -hmm. to make phone calls. Um, Yeah, and there's a continuation of that story that I kind of felt was 
unnecessary where you know who's the real dad who's the real dad right um, i thought i thought okay that, that's fascinating but i think you could have cut out almost everything about mom and stepdad and and the film did and the film did yeah and it's possible that that's just because all of that was added for the book yeah we did try and find the original screenplay yeah I that's, what's a, that's what i'd be curious about for it. the original screenplay yeah, and I, I could never find it. Mm. So oh, really? <laughs> if uh, if this should ever get to Andrewian, we would love to have a copy of the original screenplay. And uh, I don't know if we would do a whole other podcast about it. Maybe we would do a whole other podcast Maybe. about it, or so, somebody would at least read through it. And like if he actually sends it to us, yeah, we should do another podcast. Yes, for we would do another podcast. <laughs> yes. If Carl Sagan comes from beyond the grave, right? Tell us about <laughs> yeah. it. Then yes, <laughs> Touche. Uh, okay, another interesting trivial thing about the book was that uh, it was kind of predictive of things that really did happen in the future. It talked about there being a pair of Mars rovers, and one of them got stuck in the sand. Right. No, true. This was in 1985. Yeah. We still haven't had a female president yet, though. No, we haven't had a female president. <laughs> and and if you're, if you're going to credit it for things that it got right, uh, there's a lot of other stuff like uh, grand unification, you know, gravitons. And, right. Um, you know, there's a, a lot of talk in the book about, I think, the guy from, was it Nigeria? Yeah, Nigeria. Where he had yeah. done a bunch of work on... Uh, yeah, he, he came up with this theory of grand unification. Yeah. Which would be sweet if we actually do it. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that'd be cool. That happens. And books are always going to guess at what's going on. And even, like, right. technological things, um, like... The background of Haddon, how Haddon made his fortune, right? Yeah, with the uh, ad yeah. blocker, with, with the ad blocker cool. called uh, <laughs> what was it called? Adnicks. Adnicks. Yeah, Ad-nix. and then and then preachnicks. Yeah. Preachnicks. Preachnicks. To, to yeah. automatically change the channel if it was if there was a televangelist on. Right. I'm like, I could get behind that. Yeah. And there was a political one too for political commercials. Right. And I was thinking, wow, we totally still need that. Yeah. Yeah, that'd be cool. Automatically change the channel if it's a political commercial, or just mute. Boom. Yeah. That'd be sweet. So one of one of the core issues of both the book and the movie is life out there, and I think you put in here talking about the Drake equation. Right? Drake equation. Right. And so I was going to play. I was going to play a sound just in case nobody knows what the Drake equation is. Sheldon Cooper's got your back. Oh, really? Are you familiar with the Drake equation? The one that estimates the odds of making contact with extraterrestrials by calculating the product of an increasingly restrictive series of fractional values, such as those stars of planets and those planets likely to develop life. N equals R times FP times NE times FL times FI times FC times L. <laughs> yes, that one. <laughs> uh, hey, that was gold. I'm glad we got that. So the Drake equation, right? Life on other planets. Right. Discuss. Is there life on other planets? It'd be an awful waste of space if there wasn't. <laughs> yes, it would seem like an awful waste of space. <laughs> Especially, like, I was um, watching Cosmos with my son, and he was doing kind of the, or Neil deGrasse Tyson was narrating mm-hmm. your universe or your galactic address or whatever it was. Right. And, you know, where it goes, Earth, solar system, Milky Way, local cluster, or local group, or whatever, all the way out, and... Universe. When, yeah, when it, went, <laughs> when it went all the way out and showed all the galaxies, right? Uh, my son was like, "That's not that's not true, though, right?" I'm like, "Yeah, that's true." He's like, "Whoa, Whoa. that's a cool <laughs> um, picture." Yeah, it's pretty awesome. I mean, yeah. it, and it, you know, th- like the pale blue dot picture is pretty famous for showing yeah. how small right. we are, and that's only from the perspective of Saturn, right? So when you when you look at all the other galaxies and stuff, you're like, "There's got to be something out there." Seems that way, it's but we haven't had any, we haven't had any evidence of it yet. Yeah. Well, it's because we haven't made a little wrinkle in space-time. Right. True. If yeah. only if only a, a civilization had created a series of wormholes in pairs yeah. Yeah. all throughout the galaxies. Does Ancient the, aliens are jerks. Does the book talk about how... Uh, I can't remember if they did it or not now. Um, the, the theory... One of the theories of why there may or may not be civilizations out there technologically enough... Technology advanced enough to contact us is because they, would, they may have destroyed themselves. That's one of the things that is brought up again. So, you know, Drumlin oh, okay. was her remember. supervisor right. in college and now was also her supervisor in another aspect. I'm, I'm thinking of book. Right? Yeah, yeah, and yeah, yeah. he wants. Well, it definitely wasn't radio. brought up in the movie. That's why I said book. No. Yeah. <laughs> he, and he brings to this point, like, you know, even though you're only getting 25% of the time for SETI, we could be mm-hmm. doing something productive with that. Because if there were advanced civilizations, right. we'd either heard about them by now or we are so trivial to them that we're never going to be able to get in contact with them. Mm-hmm. Right. Well, the movie did. He, there were lines almost exactly like that, where he said, "There's either nothing out there, right. or I can't remember what the other one was." <laughs> yeah, <laughs> good stuff, Seth. Um, yeah, I, I've always I've wondered about that myself. Like, given how close we've come to almost wiping ourselves out a few times, you know, with with 
missile crises and that kind mm-hmm. of stuff, and that we easily had the capability to wipe out almost all life on, on the planet. You wonder if there were technological civilizations out there. Right. Do they last more than thousands of years? And we don't know. We only have one example, and yeah, so far. So far. But, well, actually, technological civilization, we're only a couple hundred years in. Right. So. Well, and with the ability to completely destroy the planet, that's yeah. 50, 60 years in. Yeah. So if you look at all recorded history, that's 1% or 2%. It seems to me there was right. some discussion of this in the day the Earth stood still. But I, I could be wrong about that. About, you know... Yes, because that, well, that, was, the, that was the message, right, from... Klaatu. Klaatu, thank you. No, but, like, <laughs> I've wondered in the past about... By the time signals got to us from mm-hmm. another civilization, that might be hundreds of thousands of years, right. and we might be just getting an echo of a now dead civilization that preceded us by 200,000 years. Mm-hmm. We finally get their signals, and they're already gone. That's like that Star Trek episode where Picard ends up... Yeah. At the end of the episode, he gets the box with the flute in it. Yeah, the inner mm-hmm. light. Yeah. Good episode. You know, yeah. I where that was an that. echo of a dying civilization. Yeah. Yeah. Or right. a dead civilization. D- did anyone else geek out over the decoding of the message? A little bit. I, so this is one thing in the movie that I felt like, okay, this is Hollywood science simplification. TV Tropes has a category, art major science. Like, this is <laughs> science as described by people who didn't study science. Right. And when I was reading the book and it talked about the prime numbers coming in, I thought, okay, well, this is an amplitude modulated signal or something, and so you could encode prime numbers into it. Whereas in the movie, it's boom, eh, 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 for two, eh, eh. For three, three bursts, and yes. and yeah, I, did, I did. I found that kind of awkward, actually. In the movie but it's really easy it. to see but what's happening. True, because because yeah. they actually showed like the oscilloscope. It's really easy to communicate. Yeah. Hey, there's prime number signal. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And I think I think that's just making it unambiguous so the audience can understand right. it, even though they don't know what prime numbers are. And then they did a nice job of talking about what those are. Right. Yeah. Yeah. By by having to talk to uh, senators who <laughs> <laughs> happen to be visiting at just right. the right time. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, but the whole idea in the movie like you said does a nice job of making it achievable. So when they finally decode it, it's a three-dimensional structure because this mm-hmm. ties to this mm-hmm. and this ties to this and then these other symbols on the side, these are the the primer to describe how everything else has worked mm-hmm. and it lays right. out a language. Yeah. And uh, in the show notes, you will see a link to a graphic which is something that was broadcast from heat, from from Earth out into the... I can't remember what direction it was. Um, but you should take a look at it and see whether or not you can try and figure out what's going on. You sent that to us. That's right. Yes. Yeah, I did. That's I'm like, no, I'm not, not even. Oh, I'm not going to try <laughs> that, that. That was presented to me at a conference. <laughs> oh, cool. And really? so we were at the break for the conference. Oh, wow. The guy says, cool. hey, have a look at these and see what you can do with it. Right. And I, I loved it. It was, That's awesome. know, it was puzzle solving at its <laughs> highest. And it was really fun. Speaking of the primer, primer, whatever you want to say, I liked how they did that in the movie with Haddon. Mm-hmm. Yeah, We're, yeah, kind of the initial made him made him the him. linchpin for figuring out the primer. Yeah, yeah. Well, and in the movie, it has to be that way because the thing that we haven't talked about yet. It, okay, are we going to spoil this? You, we oh, always yeah. go full spoilers. Okay, we're you're, you're not spoilers. listening to full this episode spoilers. unless you've at least watched the movie. Yeah. Right. So James gave the overview, but he didn't. He stopped when they built the machine. It, as the story continues, right. Ellie gets into the machine, and from her perspective, she goes on a journey where she goes out to Vega and beyond, mm-hmm. and eventually meets her father, who who is being, mm-hmm. uh, which is represent. Uh, <laughs> how do you describe this? And she's being communicated to almost in a telepathic sense by someone that, that takes the appearance of her father right. mm-hmm. uh, because he thought it would be easier for her to understand this. Yeah. Right. And they talk right. about, you know, well, what are the next steps? Will you be teaching us? And they said, no, we take little steps and this is just the first in a process. And, and then she goes back and according to the observers, there was no time elapsed. Mm-hmm. So it, it appears like the machine turned on in the movie, you know, it falls down to the bottom and they catch it in a net in the book, they don't really go anywhere. There's these They're just out of contact years. for 20 minutes. It's, it's slightly yeah. different. Yeah. And there's five people in there. And they, yeah. they all have the experience of meeting with a loved one or a person of great importance. Um, right. After the aliens telepathically download our dreams or something. Right. <laughs> um, and so there's this huge backlash, right? All of a sudden, now people are saying, we've wasted billions of dollars in trillions. people's lives, trillions of dollars. Trillions, yeah. And what do we have? We have nothing. You have no proof. Mm-hmm. And you want us to believe you based on your 
your testimony, your alien things, abduction story. Yeah, that these things really happened. But they did have proof in the movie, which is kind of cool. Yeah, actually. Yeah. Didn't they have proof in the book as well? Yes. No, not really. no, no. They didn't have the. No, they were out of contact for twenty minutes. They were out of contact twenty minutes. But they never did actually come back around to her recordings at all in the book. Mm-mm. No, they didn't. But, but in, they did in the movie. In the book, they do something completely different, which is they she they all this, write their this stuff down for the the series of ones and zeros, which is the binary encoding in pi in, mm-hmm. in eleven dimensions, which has some message, which even the aliens oh right in base eleven right yeah yeah, and uh, that actually shows up in the end of the book yeah so the computer program oh, right. finds it. Right, it finds the beginning of it. Um, right. And that was an interesting idea. The idea that there could be data hidden in transcendental numbers. Mm-hmm. But, yeah. In the movie, it, it's done different. She has a video recording, and mm-hmm. it comes back completely blank. Mm-hmm. And so she actually has to give, Not like... completely blank, static. Just static, <laughs> yes. Uh, she gives all this testimony. And there's this element that happens throughout the movie and the book, which I really appreciate it, and it's about faith. Mm-hmm. You know, here's... Uh, who's Ellie, who's, whose life mission is to try and find extraterrestrial intelligence with no data. Yeah. So it's, it's a search of, of faith. And yet she's a scientist, and she rejects people that have uh, religion, mm-hmm. right? And then here she's thrown into a situation where she is supposed to... The shoe is on the other foot. The shoe's on the other foot. She has to be, you know, be, she wants people to have faith in her. Mm-hmm. In, faith in her experience. In her experience. Right. Yes, but it's if, really happened. But if somebody told her, as Palmer Joss did in the movie, about the experience of miracle that he had mm-hmm. um, you know she would want to say no the simpler explanation is it just happened it wasn't God right and so now now she's on it's like I said the shoe is on the other foot and she's taking trying to argue from the same position that he was and expecting people to believe her yeah but I did like that but in, she does kind of have evidence in the movie kind right? of but but I also liked yeah. that that even during that that hearing Mm-hmm. She kind of had to put on her scientist hat and go, yes, I have to admit right. that it is possible that I imagined yeah. the whole thing. Yeah. Uh, the reason I brought that up was we were talking about Haddon. Mm-hmm. In the end, everyone blames it on Haddon. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, he's the guy that got all the contracts. Right. He's the guy that had all the big discoveries. Oh, he found the third layer. He found the primer, blah, blah, mm-hmm. blah, blah, blah. How how do we know that he just didn't do this in order to make a lot of money? And right. now now that he's dead. A giant hoax. There's oh, he's no... on a cruise out to Jupiter, man. Yeah. <laughs> right. Yeah. That was cooler. <laughs> yeah. And and the cool part about the movie is is that they almost indict her and say, yeah. you know, yeah, you're right. right. We have no reason to believe you. You should just leave. And then there's this conversation between the lead prosecutor and the president saying, don't you find it interesting yeah. there's exactly standing. 18 hours of static yeah. on that recording? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, it was pretty cool. Yeah. So I'm glad <laughs> they kept that element of it. it right. You know, kind of redeems this idea that she's not just crazy. Right. Yeah. yeah. And, you know, I, the one thing I did miss from the book, I liked the, the clincher that Kitts had. The message stopped the moment we activated the machine. Oh, yeah. How do you explain that if it's coming from 26 light years away? Which is an excellent question. Right. Um, and you can come up with, okay, they sent messages back in time to themselves to tell them to, to turn off the thing. But I mean, that's a zinger. Yeah. So how do you know there isn't a satellite in near-Earth orbit? Mm-hmm. And then uh, I think somebody looked at that online and said it's a utterly impossible right right with multiple radio telescopes you could never ever imitate the motion of vega in all yeah. the ways that it needs to be imitated yeah and that that was one thing where i thought even in 1997 maybe you could get away with saying this is a hoax but like today with the internet you and you and right. citizen scientists they would loudly be saying no it's not possible that this was faked yeah. On the other hand, there are still 9-11 truthers. So. But, <laughs> yeah. but they're the crackpots, right? The, I bet you there's the, flat the earthers out there, too. What's that? I bet you there's flat earthers out there, too. Oh, there is. Yeah. <laughs> Have you ever Googled the flat earth society? I don't even want to start. <laughs> it's depressing. Yeah. I, I often wonder. Just learning about Ken Ham recently is killing me. So Yeah. That was the big thing I wanted to talk about, was the faith aspect. Mm-hmm. I, I really liked that. I did, too. You know, and at the beginning, I, I thought... Um, Colin and I are coming at this from being Christians for a long time. James is associated with us and uh, <laughs> and is is literate in in Christian right. things, but not necessarily a, a believer. We'll leave it at that. There we go. 
you know, at the beginning, Ellie is talking about her childhood in, in mm-hmm. Sunday school and the uncomfortable questions that she would raise. And it comes into the movie, too. And I looked at the questions on like, these are all questions that any Sunday school teacher worth their salt should be able to go, well, that's an interesting question. Let's explore that. And not just say, get out of my class. Right. On the other hand, there's probably also a lot of Sunday te- Sunday school teachers out there not worth their salt. Right. And and there's a lot of a lot of Christians don't know much about the history of the Bible or any of that. Um, a well-informed Christian wouldn't have had any real difficulties with any of the questions that are actually raised. And when I say not have any trouble, they might those might be questions that they still wrestle with, but they wouldn't have gone, oh, my goodness, you're right, and I'm completely wrong about everything. Please leave our class. Yeah. Right. So, but that aside, I, I kind of read it, and I'm like, yeah, okay, there are better answers than she got to those questions. But I felt like the rest of the book was really almost all about faith of some kind. Mm-hmm. I and mean, it was about faith and science, and is there a conflict? They can be two totally different things, because faith is by... By virtue of being faith is not evidence-based, right? Yeah. And science is. Yeah. So or should in, be. In the, in the movie, um, Ellie is introducing the concept of Occam's razor, which has to be introduced because it's used in the tribunal later. Yeah. But she asserts that basically what's, what's more likely, that there is a god out there who left no evidence of his existence or that he doesn't exist at all. To me, it's a false dichotomy because – if you ask Christians or theists of any kind, they will say, well, no, there is evidence. It's just not up to what your standard of evidence is, maybe. maybe. So it begs the question a little bit. It's not that there is no evidence. It's that the things that I say are evidence for God's existence, you are rejecting. On the other hand, you're completely entitled to reject. True. As, uh, <laughs> as Adam Savage would say, I reject your reality and substitute my own. <laughs> So there's something I've been thinking about, and it's this weird visual representation of canonicity. So we have this great big book, and we have an itty-bitty movie, which still runs at two and a half hours. Yeah, I was going to say, it's not too itty-bitty. Yeah. And right. I, I've been wondering, right, if, if you looked at, if you thought of it as a statue, and you, you chopped down the statue to make it the size of a movie, would it still look like the original statue, or, or would it be significantly different in places? In other words, since they boiled it down so far... Is it still really telling the same story as the book? Well, I think... You, did you not hear my plot summary? I did hear your plot summary. <laughs> <laughs> you, you might look at it as the difference between a photograph of the Grand Canyon and going to the Grand Canyon. I mean, most of the time, we're all going to argue that, yeah, you should read the book because it's more detailed. Mm-hmm. Maybe it's not a better story, but it's a more detailed one. Mm. Right. Though I would also say that you should go to the Grand Canyon and, and you should not just look at photographs. So right. I don't know yeah. what I'm talking about. It's probably a lot of Well, think about it. Looking at a photograph, you're getting one sensory perception of the Grand Canyon. Yeah. You go to the Grand Canyon, you're getting the rest of those senses filled out for you. Yeah. What, which which experience is going to be more fulfilling? Hmm. Yeah. But that always says you should always go see the larger story. So if you go from short story to movie, you should go see the movie because there ought to be more in the movie than the short story. But if you have a huge Perhaps. novel adapted into a movie, you should read the novel. But it yeah. also depends on the content, too. Was was what they added worth adding? Who yes. knows? That's, yeah, that's, that's what they know. That's case by case, right? <laughs> right. And I think what we what we would say is, do it all. Right. Yeah, read we the book do it all. And make your own decisions. Yeah. Yeah. The fun part about what we do here is, is really exactly. the debate. Mm-hmm. That's why I'm typically in my rankings, I tend to go with what story did I like better that got told. Mm-hmm. Because... There could be instances where the book includes more stuff that makes it better and or makes it worse than the movie and vice versa, right? So, Yeah. Yeah, I thought it was interesting the pairing down from the five travelers to the one. To the one. And right. yet, in, I, I, I liked the way that worked in the film because it made it much easier to believe that you could go, yeah, okay, you're making it up. You know, you know what? Um, another reason I think it made, uh, worked in the movie is because in the... In the movie, you really had you really only had the U.S. doing this, everything, right? They yeah. were kind of spearheading the whole thing. Yeah, mm-hmm. you had some Japanese contractors, uh, subcontractors, etc., and other people. But where in the book, you had two major superpowers occurring at the same time: mm-hmm. Soviet Union yeah, and yeah. the and the U.S. That wasn't the case in the movie. No, well, U.S. was, was the superpower, right, right in 1997. Yeah. So I think I think it made more sense in the book to have the five people. Mm-hmm. Because in the book, it truly was an international 
endeavor. Yeah, and there's and more the about mo- in the movie, everyone. right? And it's at the height of the Cold War, and so yeah. this idea of of a unified planetary response this is really right. nice. Yeah, and Here's in the very movie optimistic. that was over. In the yes. movie, there was you know, the Cold War's done. We won, mm-hmm. you know. Presumably, well, presumably, <laughs> your definition of one, but yeah, yeah. whatever, right? I mean, in the in by 1987, U.S. is a superpower. Let's send an American done, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. So from that perspective, I think it's more justifiable to do it in the movie mm-hmm. as opposed to trying to get in more people. Plus, it makes sense to the story, right? Yeah. <laughs> so we we've talked it, a lot about the things that the movie didn't have that the book did, right? All this descriptive, all these people. Mm-hmm. There was one thing the movie added pretty strongly that was not in the book and that is the whole uh, religious terrorist subplot yeah in the in the book though somebody sabotages the machine right and lots of people take responsibility for oh, it that's true right? that's right in the movie Islamic it's made Jihad does exactly clear right. about what it is that it was Jake Busey it was Jake Busey <laughs> yeah. yeah and I was I watched it back to try and get a good handle on what his views were and I think they did a nice job of keeping him nondescript he never used the name of Jesus as no. far as I can tell yeah um, right. And I mean, essentially, he's just a cultist nut job, and and that's you know, no Christianity doesn't have to take credit for him, and or or take the blame for someone like him doing. That's kind of what I got about him. Yeah. I didn't I didn't get him as a Christian fundamentalist necessarily, mm-hmm. yeah. fundamentalist of some sort, yeah, uh, and a psycho but whack job, yeah. yeah. Um, one thing I wanted to talk about was the selection committee, okay, because I don't think it's quite as detailed in the book. About the selection process, because it's more people. And so in the right. movie, when you're only sending one person, it was really interesting. Palmer Joss, who has this previous relationship with, with Ellie, mm-hmm. is on the committee. And he hits her with the zinger question that throws her for a loop, right? The one that he knows she has a hole in. Right. Do you believe in God? And I don't know. It's, somehow I'm like, would that question come up? I think it was a valid question. Now, granted, I'm a Christian. Mm-hmm. But the way he phrased it. Was also pretty important. He said, given that 75%, I don't know the they, statistic. Somebody was, else said 95%. And I'm like, are there really 95% of people believe in some sort of deity? Yeah. It, given that you know, know a large fraction of the earth believes in some kind of deity, do you feel like you can represent us all? Right. As a, to me, I feel like she was flustered, obviously, in the film. And, and right. she basically just says, I feel like I already answered that question. Yeah. And, meaning it's not a valid question. And the right answer to me would have been, well, whose God am I supposed to represent? Right. Because are you telling me that 95% of people in the world agree on who the deity is? <laughs> so why is this important? Yeah. It, it's kind of like, but, but then I liked in the movie that then the next, that Drumlin comes in and panders and tells him exactly oh, yeah. what they totally. want to hear. Smarmy Connor. <laughs> yeah. 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 Um, He's yeah. a jerk. <laughs> yeah. Totally. But, but to me, that was very very true to the way politics works mm-hmm. where you know if you're running on a republican platform actually if you're running for president you have to affirm belief in god in in america today which to me is ridiculous i i don't care about i mean i'm a christian and i don't care if the president is a christian i i, I want to know what their policies are but i could vote for an atheist if they had good policies so mm. But I, we've had this discussion before, and you're like, nope, couldn't do it. Yeah, I couldn't do it. And in the end, they don't go in for it, right? They choose the person that, that claims faith in God. Right. A God, one e- way Even or though the he other. has no bona fides of religious belief at all. <laughs> right. And and I like that, that that's, that's what Ellie says to, to Palmer. I told the truth, and he told you exactly what you wanted to hear. Yep. That's why it should have been closed session and not on C-SPAN. Yeah, yeah as I say, it's not only the committee he was pandering to, right? Mm-hmm. He was pandering to the, everybody watching it on TV. Yeah. But he ends up dying. He's destroyed by the, the right. religious terrorist. Mm-hmm. And then... Uh, Which is also Hedden, true in the book. Yeah. S.R. Hedden <laughs> comes in and rescues the entire thing again, mm-hmm. continuing to bolster this this theory at the end that he may have just proposed this as a hoax. Right. Do you remember what... I'm going to try the line, and I'm going to paraphrase it badly, and you come back and tell me what the right line is, right? Why build one machine when you can have two at twice the cost? Yes. <laughs> That's pretty much That's right. pretty much yeah. what he said. <laughs> the first rule of government work. Right? <laughs> That's right. Yeah. John Hurt was really good as oh. Haddon. So, one thing I wanted to mention, the, the first place where Haddon is introduced, he's not introduced by name, except I think she goes into his building, right? Into his corporate headquarters or something, and she gives that, yeah. she gives her impassioned plea. In the movie. Mm-hmm. Yeah, in the movie. Okay, right. Um, and did you notice what she was wearing? I didn't notice it until I looked at the trivia. Yes. She was wearing Carl Sagan's outfit. Yeah, totally. The trademark outfit from Cosmos. Yep. 
the the brown blazer and right. turtleneck. Yeah. Nice. So, and that's also one of the scenes where she gets to be <laughs> a passionate um, defender of what she believes in. Right. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, she she's she needs to get money, otherwise they're going to shut her down and and not allow her to use the VLA any longer. So she's mm-hmm. gone right. to all these places, and the last place she goes is Haddon Industries, and uh, they say. I'm sorry, but I think we could spend our money on real science someplace else. Yeah, what you're talking about seems more like science fiction. Yes, and she goes, oh yeah, science fiction. Listen, there are these two guys. They build bicycles, but they want to build an airplane. Right. And I know these other people <laughs> that want to put a man on the moon. So why shouldn't we get engaged with humanity's most most important, you know, this could be the most significant thing that humanity ever finds out, mm-hmm. is a, whether there's life in other planets. Right. Yeah. And then there's this phone call. Yeah, you get your money. <laughs> And then she doesn't meet him until later. But yeah, that's the, the movie is a good um, kind of argument for peer research and for, for, for doing things, for going places, like going, funding the, the mission to Europa. You know? right. We don't know what we'll find on the way yeah. or in, in the course of, of outfitting that mission. Right. You know, kind of like... Oh, uh, it's kind of like developing the Man to the Moon program, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. All the technologies that came out of mm-hmm. getting somebody to the moon. And, and the same arguments for going to Mars mm-hmm. or capturing an asteroid and bringing it back, or, right. or you know, robotic exploration versus manned exploration. Speaking of which, we will be covering The Martian later this year. <sighs> Woohoo! Yeah. Um, but Haddon, Haddon, um, I liked the way you you didn't get the whole background of of Ellie in the in the movie. You didn't get all the talk about how she came up through the field mm-hmm. and and invented some ruby thing. I can't remember what it was. Mm-hmm. <laughs> oh, the, some, she perfected yeah. some process, or, right? To, to increase sensitivity of. I think it was the process for creating the rubies. Okay, yeah. Um, but when she meets him aboard his plane, because he stays in the air most of the time, right? <laughs> he kind of reads through her dossier, mm-hmm. and so it gives you that background of her character, which I thought was cool. Yeah. Um, Palmer Joss is an interesting one because he's a pretty minor character in the book. Really, he he appears here and there. Yeah. And he's sort of a pseudo love interest, and I I kept expecting just because I had seen the movie, like mm-hmm. okay, well they're going to hook up at some point, and yeah. then then there's the whole thing with DeHair, but it's Matthew McConaughey, and you're going to have him a and little his more hair. major. But when I I remember when I first saw the movie as a Christian, I'm like okay, so this is this is the public Christian that America can be, get behind, somebody who sleeps with ladies, <laughs> you know, can't get behind the whole celibacy thing, um, and is really smooth. And it bothered me at the time, and now I'm sort of like, no, that's okay. Um, not that I'm okay with him sleeping with the ladies, but what we were talking about before, Matthew McConaughey's hair. Right. Where, where he's all just impeccably coiffed throughout the whole movie, even when he's in uh, Arecibo. Arecibo, you know? yeah. yeah. And he just he just looks, you know, like a surfer dude. You know, no offense. Right. Um, <laughs> and, but then in uh, Hokkaido, all of a sudden, he's, like, he just had yeah, just it was a crazy. horrible hair day. I don't know what happened. I don't know if you noticed it. Like, his hair is all frizzy. It was just horrible. <laughs> so I didn't know if it was like reshoots or something, and or if it was raining that day. Or, I Bad don't know. hair day. He, he doesn't want to lose Ellie. And he tells her that at the end, which is kind of a nice development of their love story. That, right. that he didn't vote against her, really, because of the God question. Because he didn't want to lose her. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, and then there's this whole thing about the compass. And there are several visual themes in the movie, which weave throughout the whole thing. Like, there's the pattern of dots. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. In, oh, yeah. in the sand at the end? In the sand, uh-huh. and in the dirt, and on the floor at our house. Mm-hmm. Um, and in and at one other place. I can't remember what it is, but... Um, there's a couple of those. They're not, they're, those aren't MacGuffins, but they're... Breadcrumbs. Breadcrumbs. Yeah. Like, you should know this. I did I did want to mention, um, I was listening to the commentary, and I think I commented on this when we watched the movie, when they're in Arecibo and they're having a beer or whatever, and he's opening up the Cracker Jacks, and that's where he comes out with the compass. And I'm like, they don't put toys like that in Cracker Jacks. And these <laughs> days they don't. And since the 70s, they haven't. Um, and, oh, really? And Yeah. Oh, um, okay. Because you know, kids could choke on them. Yeah, that's true. And right. but but on, so on the commentary, they 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 were trying to justify it, trying to retcon it. They're like, well, Puerto Rico just has a really old supply of Cracker Jacks. <laughs> they don't have those stupid import rules like they do right. on Uber Ashingsire. Yeah, poor so. Kinder Eggs. Mm, Kinder Eggs. So yeah, movie trivia. It was a successful movie. Cost ninety million to make. Took in one hundred and seventy-one million at, at all the box offices internationally. Uh, it's interesting to me that it was PG. When like now, the, like mm. the money point is PG thirteen. If it was made today, it would be PG thirteen. How would you change this to be PG thirteen? 
I was actually a little surprised how close we got to uh, seeing some of uh, Jodie Foster's right um, lady parts. Lady parts. That's in how a PG, you change in a PG it. film. <laughs> Maybe yeah, I'm not sure. I'm not sure how, how you necessarily change it, but yeah. but I bet it would be PG-13 anyway. They would push for it somehow. And probably get uh, it. more language, maybe. Uh. Yeah, you get there. Throw an f bomb in it. Yeah. Sixty-three uh, percent positive on Rotten Tomatoes. Not a great score. Mm-hmm. Uh, won a whole slew of awards. I think they were all Saturn Awards. Makes sense. Uh, and it was nominated for an Academy Award for sound design. Oh, really? Because mm. you think like cool. you know the, how how important it is the the sound is like the radio sure. sounds. Yeah. What about visual design? <laughs> yeah, I so I thought the the whole wormhole part of it was pretty yeah. interesting. I I did enjoy in the book, you know, the talk of kind of kind of like it was a subway system. You know, it right. was clearly a tunnel, and and like the the walls of the transport thing would become transparent. Transparent, yeah. And you felt you had like this scraping going on, right? Mm-hmm. Which is kind of cool. Which they can never uh, validate with evidence afterwards. They can't ever right. tell that you scraped it, but they wouldn't know if right. it would be scraped. No, they did. They were they were they were able to find residual radioactive material on the outside of the hull of the. Yeah, but they figured it could thing. be faked somehow. Yeah, yeah if, they, if they had the technology to to launch that satellite. Right. Good point. I did like how they did the machine in the movie. That was kind of cool. It was kind of cool. I I thought that the machine in Hokkaido was a lot better looking than the machine the, in Washington D.C. Washington D.C. Was that before or after it blew up? <laughs> after it blew up. Okay. Yeah. The, the one that blew up, I thought looked a little chintzy, but. So here's a question. The the vegans or whoever they are are vegans. Yeah, vegans. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> they are caretakers essentially, right? They are not the ones who built the transport system. Right. right. They use in, it in both the book and the movie. You feel like that's a little bit of a cop out? No. 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 Okay. There's uh, like Stargate series, same kind of a thing. Maybe that's why I've never enjoyed Star- Stargate. <laughs> Maybe not. I don't I like I Mass wanted- Effect same thing. Okay, I'm wrong then. Uh, Seth is wrong. Um, <laughs> Mark that time. No, we're going to get that edited out. Seven o five p.m. February twenty second, Sunday. Yeah, no, I just I, I kind of felt like you know what? If you're going to go this far, give, give, give us an explanation to tell us how how it was all built. But since it's all fiction, I guess they couldn't really do it. It was an easy way to cop out. In yeah. uh, from a from a author perspective, I suppose. Yeah. If, if so that's one, what you're going for. <laughs> one thing I did enjoy in the in the film was you had those those visual cues of at the beginning of the movie you have David Morse and Jenna Malone are playing the the dad and Ellie right and she's using her shortwave radio and she reaches Pensacola, Florida, and then she makes that drawing of Florida with the two palm trees yeah. and the one is bent way way over. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And that is what ends up being presented to her in this dream sort of thing right. encounter with then her dad. Yeah. And the coloring of that was all very interesting. It was it was kind of fuzzy like like they always uh, in classic Star Trek whenever they showed the pretty lady <laughs> the soft focus, you know. Soft focus. Um, right. and that's that's what it reminded me of. And a little bit of the Polar Express kind of the the lighting look of that film. Yeah. And and it's Robert Zemeckis. So True. by the way It gave it a surreal aspect for sure. Yeah. At the beginning and in several places through the film there's a piano theme that's played and it kept reminding me another of another film. And I thought it was while you were sleeping, which I've seen a bazillion times and that's why I would why it would trigger. I think it was Forrest Gump, which is another Zemeckis and um, Silvestri. He and also Silvestri, did all the sound yeah. design for that. And I think that's what it reminded me of. Like, it was too reminiscent of another film, and it kind of took me out of it. So, Oh, oh really? Yeah. I like that. Where I recognized it, I was like, this is a John Williams film. Oh, <laughs> oh yes. <laughs> so um, now we know what to listen for for Alan, I hope it's Alan Silvestri, is that right? I think so. Okay. Yeah. So uh, another trivia thing, Jenna Malone does not have blue eyes. And so one of the early CG <laughs> effects was to change her eye color to match Jodie Foster. Wow. Yeah. That's crazy. <laughs> um, there's there's a cool sequence in the film when Dad dies, where where it's a, a really long continuous shot with her running up to get his medicine and then then turning and getting in the mirror. Right. And they talked about that on the on the commentary, and it was it was interesting the way they had to blend a Steadicam shot with and stitch it all together to make it look seamless because the shot is impossible. Because the cam- the camera should have showed up in the mirror at some point, right? Oh yeah, yeah, that was cool how they did that. But um, oh, and uh, talking about the 
the pattern of stones and that kind of stuff. Um, one thing I noticed, and they called out on the commentary, was he spills his popcorn, right? Mm-hmm. Dad does when he collapses, and it's in the shape of Ursa Minor or Ursa Major, whatever it is. Oh, I didn't notice okay. that. Yeah. I thought there were like I thought it, there, were, there was popcorn in the shape of that too, though. There, mm, it could have been. Um, one of my gripes, though, with films is main character running directly into camera or directly away from camera and obviously not running the way people in emergencies run. When you're running to get medicine for your dad who's collapsed, you are falling forward and your legs are barely keeping up. And here she is straight up and down doing high knees right. down the hallway taking five times as long to actually get up there. It, it bothers me. In uh, Godzilla, the 2014 movie, the main female character there did the same thing where she's hopping up and down when she should be just sprinting balls out <laughs> <Booking> it. <laughs> um, and what was the other one it was uh, Man of Steel Lawrence Fishburne does exactly the same the high knees I'm barely moving trying to run away from a building that's falling so Crazy. it bothers me and, and I notice it in all kinds of films like run like you mean it come on that's funny <laughs> or like a pavement powder yeah, yeah. No, no, no. We we look more like the people who aren't going very fast. <laughs> we, we aren't going very fast. No, we're not. <laughs> yeah. Nice. <laughs> so, favorite Zemeckis film? There is a right answer. Back to the Future, perhaps? Ding. Yes. Thank you, Wikipedia. Oh, yeah, totally. Yeah. That's Ooh, a quality film. Not based on a book, back. unfortunately. We could fix that. We just have to go back in time. <laughs> right, novelization. <laughs> right, there we go. I'm sure there is one. Yeah. So we, we've talked about the story. We've talked about the book. We've talked about things that were in and out. We haven't talked about the golden question, which is which one do we each like better? Yes. Are Those you guys two. ready to go there, or are there more things you want to bring out? You want to rank them? Yeah. Sure. Let's do it. Yeah, we can do that. All right. Uh, I brought it up, so I'm going to go first, and I'm, I'm going to shock people. I'm going to say movie then book. Wow. This Whoa. is like three in a row, Colin. I know. I know. And I've been wondering if, it, if it's, you know, um, well, I actually did read the movie, read the, the book before the movie for this one. But I think the movie just tells the story so much better. The book was a bit of a slog. I was going to say those exact words. I was going to say I found the book to be a little bit of a slog. So, And you can tell by how long it took me to read it. Um, oh, because, my goodness. Yeah. <laughs> so we would have been doing this podcast sooner, everyone, except that Seth was the last guy to finish yeah. the book. This and is surprisingly, what it, I was the first. And yes. you were the first. This is what it feels like to be James, I guess. <laughs> now, did you drink enough to finish this? Or did you no, you maybe, see, that's the problem. See, I, didn't, problem. I didn't have didn't one get, drink didn't the whole time. up. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, no, I, I had a hard time with this one. And part of it was work's been busy, and I was reading a couple other books. I was trying to finish uh, Man in the Empty Suit, and, and I just didn't get... I haven't had the time to dedicate to read it. And just, like, the last couple of days, I read the last 150 pages. So... Yeah. Now, that being said... It definitely accelerates at the end. It does. There are things I like much better about the book than I do the movie. Mm-hmm. I like the ending of the of the book better. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I feel like the movie is tighter, which is funny considering it's a pretty long movie. Yeah. And there definitely are things that I felt like could have been cut, but... From the movie? Yeah. yeah. What would you have cut? There's a scene where Palmer Joss is asking her how she got into astronomy. And we already knew it was from her dad. And she talks about Venus. And as she's narrating it, they, oh, do, right. they do a flashback and show David Morse and Jenna Malone again. And I'm like, no, we just heard Jodie Foster say it. We don't need to hear you say it. Oh. Also, it repeats. Um, and I felt like, oh, that was extraneous. But other than that, it was, it was pretty tight. So. Okay. So, yeah, I'm going to go movie, then book. Mm-hmm. Ditto. Same reasons, <laughs> really. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah, we are unanimous. I, I go movie book as well. Now, I will say, I on the Sci-Fi Movie Podcast, they they ask the question, is this essential science fiction viewing about a movie? And we could answer that question about the book and the movie. And I feel like it's an important book, um, probably pretty influential, uh, given when it came from. It probably should be read, if, you, if you're a geek. Yeah. So it's uh, notable that Colin had previously read it, and James right. and I had not, so... Colin is a proper geek. True. Yeah. <laughs> you know, one other thing we should mention about the movie that I, I just read here on Wikipedia was it was nominated by AFI for one of the top ten science fiction books, science fiction movies ever. Wow. So, huh. I mean, it was popularly successful. Wow. It, 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 it makes science and science fiction uh, reachable by people that aren't geeky like me. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, now, that being said, there are some probably really geeky people that listen to this podcast, and I've had a chance to interact with some really geeky people recently. Uh, I'm, I'm backing a Kickstarter 
for a science fiction pulp book club in New York. Sweet. And uh, asked them, you know, I'm trying to find these books that I barely remember reading from my childhood. How would you right. do this? And you go to stackexchange.com. And you ask the question. And two days later, I had an answer for the first, first book I was trying to remember. That's pretty cool. That's awesome. Yeah. So, I mean, if you guys think I'm geeky, there are people that are have, <laughs> geekier and have right. way more sci-fi knowledge than we do. And if you, have, if you disagree with us about whether it's essential reading or it's uh, important to watch um, or whether it was good or bad, you know, give us some feedback. We'd love to debate with you on or off, off podcast. Well, and, you know, I asserted unilaterally that I think it's, it's definitely something that should be read once. I don't think I would right. read it again. Because oh, it would. was a bit of a slog, you would. I might do it. Well, you already years. did read twice, right? Yeah, yeah. yeah. I have to find Space that, Eagle first. I don't think I found it as sluggish as you guys are presenting it. It doesn't sound like it. I mean, because no. you, you tore through it pretty quick. I, I enjoyed. Uh, I enjoyed all the scientific nuances of it all, and it, it presented to me topics I didn't know any much about. And I did a lot of googling while reading this book. Yeah. <laughs> I yeah. Got, and I, I did a lot. It was. Yeah, it was interesting from that perspective. Mm-hmm. Reading, well, reading more further on my own about radio, uh, radio observatories and yeah, radio astronomy isn't something I know much yeah. about at all. So. Radio astronomy, relearning what I had forgotten about spectroscopy and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. It's really cool. Well, yeah. even at one point we were talking about the four fundamental forces because we were talking about unification theory, right? right? Mm-hmm. And then within a, week, within a week of that, out comes this new XKCD comic. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> we should cool. put that in the show notes. We should. Yeah, <laughs> I, I think there's a SETI one on there too. I'm sure there's. Oh, I'm sure there's multiple XKCD. There definitely there has, has to be. be. Yeah, I know there's one on the Drake equation. So, um, yeah, because when I was searching for the Drake equation the other day for the the Big Bang theory quote, I, there was an XKCD that came up too. So nice. Maybe I'll put that one in the show notes as well. Um, but like, yeah, like Colin said, if you want to get a hold of us and and let us know what you thought of the movie, usually we like uh, you know for people to tell us that kind of thing before we discuss it, and then we can we can talk about your comments, but. Alas, no one responded to my post on Facebook. Nah. That's okay. So we love you anyway. But next time you can get a hold of us and you can tell us what you think of the next thing that we're going to be doing, which is... Total Recall. Yes. So we will yes. be reading We Can Remember It For You Wholesale by Philip K. Dick. And, and if you we'll... don't remember, we'll totally recall it for you. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> and then you'll think you read it. Right. Um, and then we'll be talking about the classic film with Arnold Schwarzenegger <laughs> and um, then the less classic one with Kate Beckinsale and some dude um, right. Colin Farrell I know whatever but, yeah yeah. some and, guy and, and Heisenberg Woo-hoo. Brian Cranston Brian Cranston okay there you go yeah he was in the, the new he was uh, Cohagen in the reboot Total Recall so that is what we will be talking about for next time. So your assignment is to go and read the story. It's not terribly long. It's not super, super short, but I think it's still in solid short story range rather than novella. Yeah. Um, and watch at least one of the films, maybe both. I think uh, the original film is actually on Netflix streaming right now. Cool. So we will be watching that one. I think the new one is too. I think we should have a party. Party. Yeah. Rista. And chill out. Yeah. <laughs> no, no. Don't chill out. Uh, yes. Screw you, <laughs> Benny. <laughs> yes. You know, we, we have gotten some new uh, submissions recently, and we've slotted those into the queue. We have. So, that's right. And we always appreciate feedback. Even if you don't have things that you want us to watch, if you know about additional uh, adapted sci-fi that we're not tracking it, we would love to hear about it. You can go to our queue page. At the top of the queue page is everything that we've done. Uh, usually after the list of everything we've done, there's a couple of things that we think that we're going to do in the next order, and that can change on a week-to-week, sometimes day-to-day basis. Yep. But then there's this huge long list of other things uh, based on our research and Wikipedia and books and online. Uh, I thought we had almost almost everything, and yet just this last week, right, we had yet another submission. Mm-hmm. Yep. So um, at some point, we're going to have like the world's most complete adapted science fiction database. Well, and Colin has started curating a Wikipedia category for that Exact purpose. That's right. Adapted so science fiction. If you go to Wikipedia and you look for movies based on short form science fiction or just, something. Just look like up on that. Wikipedia anything that we've covered. And yes. Colin has linked it in the category. Yeah. Yeah. So tag it in there. We'll find it. Yeah. But we did get a Twitter request or 
something to add to the queue. And I figured, let's move it to the top of the list. He has subsequently actually sent us something else. And I'm like, okay, we'll do one. <laughs> and anything else, we'll, we'll add to the queue and consider it for later. Uh, but his name is Michael. And we want to say thank you, Michael, for for giving us that suggestion. And that suggestion is Rollerball, yeah. which I had no idea was based on a short story yeah, by the same yeah. guy who wrote the film. Mm-hmm. And the, the short awesome. story is called Rollerball Murder. Yeah. So that sounds sweet. But yeah, so we will be doing that one probably for April, I believe. So for March, yeah. it is Total Recall and then Rollerball. And then I can't remember if we decided what we're going to do after that, but it doesn't matter because it's a couple months away. Yeah, right. So, well, the rumor it was either going to be Starship, Starship Troopers. Troopers. Yeah, I think yeah. that's what yeah. we had said. So, which would be awesome. We should totally do cool. It's weird that we did another <laughs> Heinlein story before Starship <laughs> Troopers. It is. But yeah. Predestination was so good. It was good. Yeah. yeah. True story. Go back and listen to our episode, which I think we all agree was actually our best one. Yeah. Until this one, obviously. We were awesome this time. Right. But, and the next one will be even better. Any, anything else to say, guys? Did we, did, did we talk about it all? It was, there was an, this was an interesting discussion because we didn't um, just talk about the book and then just talk about the movie, but I kind of yeah. like that. So. Yeah. Yep. We're good yeah. to go? I think, we're, I think we're good. Take us yeah. home, Seth. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to have to try and come up with an outgoing blessing on the fly here. So we'll see how it goes. You can always go so, classic. I could always go classic, but why would I? You know, if <laughs> this big of a universe to use the same blessing every time would seem like a real waste of space. <laughs> Anyhow, thank you everybody for listening and we will talk to you next time. Until then, we leave you with a blessing of some sort, vaguely approaching something to do with pavement pounders. May the road rise up to meet you, and may you always check your sidebands for additional information. Ah, there we go, yes. Seriously, you're bringing cookies into the room and then telling us not to eat them. (laughs) This is the sound of us eating cookies. Are you recording? Mm -hmm. (laughs) (laughs) Mm. Chocolate chip cookie. So good. Mm. Thank you, Emily. Ascension, 23 degrees, left declension, <laughs> 17 degrees, 4 minutes. I've totally got to grip that audio and put, yes, and put it on there. Yeah. <laughs> Are you recording? Never stopped. And then, then we start. James doesn't want to be pinned down to uh, one adjective. There's no, no good way to say this. I don't this. mind being pinned down. <laughs> no matter how I phrase this, you can come up with something dirty.